Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Not Safe for Wonks. You know, we like to say that every episode here is a special episode, and this one definitely will be because joining us today, we have a fantastic guest we've been looking forward to speaking with. Uh, before she introduces herself, I'll just remind you, I'm Kennedy Cooper. Lay Rose. Rachel Kahn. And joining us today, we are very, very glad to host Melanie Darigo. Melanie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be here. Melanie is a candidate for New York's third district, challenging a rather questionable incumbent. I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, Melanie, we're, we're just so excited to have you on. Um, could you start off by just kind of introducing who you are and uh, just kind of like the basics of why you're running? Absolutely. Uh, my name is Melanie Dorigo. I am running the third district of New York. My district covers uh, northeastern Queens and hugs the northern shore of Long Island. So it's mostly northern Nassau and a good significant portion of um, northern and mid Suffolk. Um, and I'm running because we need representatives who represent us, not corporations. And sadly, when um, representatives are voting, in questionable manners when they're breaking with a party frequently and you look at it or you wonder why are they not solving these very solvable issues and you look and see who their donors are. Unfortunately, it's almost always tied to um, a corporate donor. So we're really pushing hard to put the people first and find solutions and enact solutions that will really improve the lives of working families. Uh, I'm a mom of three. I'm a community organizer. I've worked as an allied health professional throughout my career. So for me, this is really personal. Um, you know, I never thought that I would be running for Congress. So this has been quite a ride. Um, but I really feel strongly that the only way to change things is if we have people with integrity and morality who are stepping up to change them because they know it's the right thing to do, not the politically expedient thing to do. As we understand it, there was kind of an inciting incident in some ways for you to run. It may not be have been the only thing that made this decision, but Brett Kavanaugh's appointment to the Supreme Court, something that honestly emotionally affected a lot of people and kind of it was definitely a moment of certain groups um, that have taken power within the government sending a strong message that some of us are not welcome at the table, or at least that's, that's how we felt about it. And it seems from reading about you, you might have felt similarly. Um, what can be done to combat uh, such a disgusting appointment and to like, you know, he's, he's in there, it's presumed that he's in there for life. How can we fix this situation? Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's a variety of ways that it can be addressed. Um, you know, the root cause is that we have to elect representatives who are going to represent the people again. Um, you know, unfortunately, we have this rogue Senate who have um, really just compromised American values to follow Donald Trump. I mean, as ridiculous as that statement sounds, but they, they enable him, they protect his lies at all costs. And I think it's really important that everyone stays vigilant and try to help out where you can. If you have Democrats, uh, Democrats who represent you um, in the Senate in your state, you need to look, look at your surrounding states or look where you can help if you can make small donations. Um, we certainly need a... Um, 
certainly a more moral and a moral Senate really, you know? Um, so that's step one. Uh, and then of course there are, there's a variety of, um, steps we could take. You know, there are some who are talking about expanding the Supreme Court and that would lessen the impact. Um, I really think we need to um, we need to do a full vetting of Brett Kavanaugh's background. It, a lot of records have been kept confidential. We need to unseal them and we need to see what we're dealing with here. Uh, you know, in a Trump world, we are constantly inundated in the media and, you know, something happens in the morning and 10 things have happened by night. You don't even remember the first thing that happened this morning. And, and something similar happened during the Brett Kavanaugh trials. You know, he had a lot of debt that mysteriously went away. And um, it really just got sucked up into vacuum <laughs> of the media cycle. And I think we need to look at that. We need to see what happened there because we need to see who paid off that debt because it didn't just disappear on his, you know, Brett Kavanaugh didn't take care of that debt. We need to look and see what happened with that. So I think, um, you know, there's potential recourse that way. Uh, you know, of course, um, his egregious behavior would would likely warrant an impeachment, but we need to look and see if, in fact, um, it's possible to impeach Brett Kavanaugh on a legal basis. And I think that's something we need to pursue. Now, your incumbent is in the, the PSC, the Problem Solvers Caucus, uh, and it's something that's been talked uh, not too much talked about, but kind of what is the Problem Solvers Caucus and why is it not the best that it could be? Like, I mean, we have problems, you know. Why, why, why shouldn't we be solving them? Right. Uh, well, that, that's, the, that's the question. Um, in the progressive circles, we joke that it's really the problem causers caucus. <laughs> um, you know, for, the, for your viewers who may not know, or your listeners who may not know, the problem solvers caucus ideologically sounds pretty great. Let's work together. Let's, sound prob let's solve problems. That's the mission. Um, is comprised equally of Democrats and Republicans. It tends to be very conservative Democrats who join this caucus. Um, the problem with it is that the caucus doesn't caucus for every vote. Only they only come together for certain legislation, certain re certain resolutions, um, or certain rebukes um, when it benefits the Republican Party. Um, and so my, my opponent, Tom Swazi, is the vice chair of the group. Um, now, I'll, I'll back up and say, you know, I told you earlier that I have been organizing in my community. I worked really hard, like I, I assume um, maybe you did too, and I assume a lot of your, your listeners worked really hard in 2018 to flip the house. Um, you know, we held it mm -hmm. down in my district. Um, and, and the very first thing that my opponent did was to join the Problem Solvers uh, Caucus, which was a real slap in the face to, to those of us who had worked so hard to put a check on a lawless president. Because what they did was continually apologize for Trump, enable Trump, and really go against the Democratic Party. So I think that, you know, all of them need to be, all the Democrats there for sure need to be questioned, their feet need to be held to the fire, and they need to explain their votes. Um, I'm sure you all remember uh, in 2018 when when we were talking about the new Speaker of the House and Nancy Pelosi, of course, was um, was trying to secure her votes. It was the Problem Solvers Caucus who really pulled back and said, "Well, well, we're not so sure." And they negotiated. One of the things they negotiated was to weaken the Democratic power in the House and strengthen the GOP, making it easier for them to bring bills to the floor. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that I know I know this is not for wonks, and that's pretty wonky. But it's egregious that we all worked so hard to flip the house, and the first thing those Democrats mm-hmm. did was weaken mm-hmm. Democratic power. And you know we, we can, can have a little wonk, a little wonk every once in a while. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and you know we we've seen it over and over when when Donald Trump, um, you know, one of the many times he issued racist comments on the squad, the problem solvers came together, and not a single one of them called him out as racist. My opponent, um, you know, his big rebuke was that it was inappropriate. Um, perhaps most egregiously, uh, we saw them come together during the emergency border aid funding bill um, that happened in July. Around that time, a lot of stories were coming out about the southern border. Um, you know, we knew that kids were being locked in cages. They were being torn from their families. People were dying. There are reports coming out that women were being abused, not just mentally, but physically and sexually. Um, and Congress came together and passed the emergency uh, border bill. And I think everyone took this, you know, sigh of relief. Thank goodness we have funded some humanitarian aid down at the border. But if you read the bill, it was one of those cases where, while the title sounded good, the bill did not reflect the title. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, um, you know, for those of you who may not know, there was a bill passed in the House that had, um, I can't remember the exact number, but it was somewhere between um, 10, and, 10 to 12 humanitarian aid protections built explicitly into the bill that were humanitarian aid related. So, uh, you know, things like guaranteed food, water, medical access, and different services to help um, help migrants at the border. So Mitch McConnell did his thing when it got to the Senate. He stripped out every single humanitarian aid protection. He expanded funding for ICE. He expanded funding for the Customs and Border Patrol. He included additional military funding, which wasn't in the original bill. Um, it was a $4.5 billion taxpayer spend over half of which went to expanding detention centers. Now we can talk about whether expanding detention centers is humanitarian aid in that particular circumstance, but the last thing we needed was to create more of these, um, these basically what I, I refer to as torture centers. Uh, and mm-hmm. the problem solvers came together after, they all, after the House received the Senate version of the bill. Now I have it on good authority that um, Nancy Pelosi was working all day to try to put some of the protections back in. And the Problem Solvers Caucus and the Blue Dog Dems went to Nancy Pelosi and said, no way. It was right before 4th of July. They wanted to go on their vacation. And they told her, we will not vote for a new bill. We're only voting for this bill. Um, and it was reported. But again, it was a case of um, you know really getting lost in, um, in the media cycle. Um, and then my my opponent went and had a town hall when he was back home, and he stood in front of a room full of people and he touted this humanitarian aid bill that he had worked so hard on. Uh, as it turns out, he never read the bill, and he stood up there telling lies and didn't know that it expanded detention centers, and didn't know that only about three percent of the bill went to humanitarian aid. And um, that was one of those moments where I really just. Um, I really just threw up my hands because I, I was sort of done with him at that point. This, you know, we, there, of course, it's a partisan, it's become a partisan um, issue. Uh, what do we do with the, the border? But at the end of the day, human lives are on the line. People are dying at our southern border, at the hand of the United States. And what does it say about a representative when he can't even be bothered to read the bill? 
Absolutely. And I just want to say, as somebody who lives in a border state, this is a, this is a self-perpetuating cycle where we have these um, asylum seekers and other migrants showing up. They're showing up in very dire straits, a lot of them, like a lot of them close to illness or even worse. And, and so here's the thing. When, when we don't get any humanitarian aid, like we have churches and stuff here pick, trying to pick up the slack and it's too much. You know, and so when we don't get any humanitarian aid, it 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 makes the crisis greater, and then that gives them more justification out there in Washington, who don't even live near the border, don't understand any of what's going on here. Um, you know, that gives them the justification to say, "Oh, well, we need to be even stricter at the border." It's like they're just they're just feeding this stuff back into itself. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's very intentional. Uh, what state do you live in? If you don't mind me asking. I'm in New Mexico. Oh, you're in New Mexico. Okay. I, I actually volunteered. I went down to um, El Paso. Um, and, and just like what you're describing, um, Annunciation House, all the Catholic churches had um, set up. Well, Annunciation House, obviously, that's their purpose. They had um, set, you know, a very large shelter in El Paso set up. But a lot of the Catholic churches down there set up makeshift shelters because um, El Paso was really overrun. And we had gotten a call, a, you know, a few friends of mine had gotten a call um, from another friend who was down there volunteering. And she said, we really need help. We need supplies. We need people. So a few of my friends and I decided to go down and volunteer. By the time we had booked our ticket to the, to the time we flew down, um, everything had changed because of the MPP policy out of the Trump administration, which, again, ironically, is called the Migrant Protection Program. Uh, and really all it is, is deport everyone. That's what it means. Um, so no one was being protected, but they were deporting everyone to Mexico. And they don't take them somewhere safe in Mexico. They literally drive them across the border and drive them into Mexico and drop them off on a street corner. Um, so when my friends and I got there, we were going around to every shelter and found that every shelter had closed. And this was just in a couple of weeks time. And so we ended up, um, having to go over the footbridge and, you know, make our way into Juarez and we found a shelter there. And so we were able to, um, speak with people who had been detained or who were waiting to be detained. And we were able to bring some supplies and money to the shelter. Um, so I, I, I got to, you know, I had very special experience. I felt very honored to be able to, to go down and help. You know, we raised um, about $10,000 in my community um, and, you know, took those funds right to where it was needed. Um, and so like, I, I feel like I have a very good perspective on, you know, what's going on down there. Um, my opponent, the first time he went down to the border, he came back up and went on Fox News and he told everybody that ICE and Customs and Border Patrol is doing a great job and we have to adequately fund them. Um, he was one of the only Democrats actually break with the party to support ICE. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, I tell this story because I think it really, you know, coupled with, um, you know, his role in the Problem Solvers Caucus, I think it starts to highlight, you know, priorities and, and values, right? Um, it, you either prioritize, you, you prioritize your corporate donors or you prioritize human life. And um, oftentimes you can't do both. Uh, so, it's it's really egregious that we have so many representatives who are so willing to turn this into a partisan issue and not treat it like the crisis that it is. The Border Patrol and ICE are both attached to the same armature of policing and militarism in the United States. Um, and, you know, you talked about 
other organizing you've done. And one of the things I really wanted to ask you about, uh, I'm actually from Atlanta, born and raised, still live here. Um, and I remember you were one of the organizers of one of the Atlanta women's marches, correct? So I went to at least one of them. I don't know how there were more than one or not. Um, but I went to at least one of them and it was huge. And it genuinely meant something to me in that moment to know that there were this many other people who were angry enough to show up to things. Right. Um, but after the fact, as I continued organizing and so many of those women didn't, one of the criticisms I heard over and over again was the women's march was too friendly with the police and that had the effect of making it less safe for people of color and for trans people. Um, and I bring that up sort of as part of a larger question. When we're building our movement, how can we create a place that is more inclusive and more safe for the people who are here, for the people who are trying to come here, and for the people who happen to live in places where there's oil by addressing these issues of militarism and policing and police brutality and violence and funding at the national level? Yeah, I think, um, you know, that's, there's not an easy answer to to that question. Uh, because I think, you know, the United States is so large, and, and each particular state has its own issues, um, and, and varying degrees of what uh, protection looks like, and, and what brutality looks like, right. Um, and I think that we, we would have to dissect it and, and kind of take them one by one. Um, but just like generally, I think we need to stand by each other and show up for each other, right? So you, you raised the trans community and, and women of color. I think that white people are, are not all white people, but there are um, white activists who are trying. They're trying to show up and they're learning. And, and you know, I the best advice that I ever got um, in trying to come into spaces and be helpful was you are going to mess up. Don't be afraid of it. Keep coming back. Keep showing up. Um, and, and I think so many folks are afraid to say the wrong thing and be called racist or say the wrong thing and be called anti-Semitic or Islamophobic. And, and so it keeps them from, from showing up. And I think the most important thing is to come to a space honestly and openly and um, really raw and, and without ego and see how you can be helpful, right? And I think that's our responsibility or like my responsibility as a white person um, coming to a space. I think when it comes to a march, I'm not clear on the question you were asking. Um, you said that maybe, um, sorry, if you could repeat it, they were, the, the feedback was that the Women's March organizers were too friendly to the police. Is, is that, is that, was that your question? Uh, just overall, that the tone of the march was very, very friendly with the police. I mean, I remember myself seeing a lot of people going by and, like, doing a train high-fiving the police officers. Um, and I can definitely understand how if I was a person of color or if I was a trans woman, you know, and I saw white cis women doing that in front of me, I would feel kind of betrayed, you know? And I think that was the overall... Yeah. Response and criticism what, what that I, got sure. in that capacity. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think that driving a larger wedge between 
um, police officers and the general public is the answer. I think we need um, more inclusivity training and we need more diversity. And, and I mean, that's a very comprehensive uh, or we need a more comprehensive solve for that. I think in terms of it in a march, I think it's, it, you know, it's partly what I said earlier, you need to show up and you need to stand with these different communities that are marginalized. And I think, you know, as white people, maybe it's, it's building those bridges and taking those concerns to the police, although it's, you know, that sounds, um, you know, all rosy in the sky, but we need to start having these hard conversations and it doesn't change uh, if we if we stay silent about it. Uh, in my community where I live, uh, we've recently seen a rise in anti-Semitism. So not the same thing, uh, but there's been a lot of talk um, in, you know, in my district about, well, how, how do we combat anti-Semitism and how do we stand with the community for those of us who are not Jewish? And, you know, it's, it's not an answer, but, you know, on Sunday, about 5,000 of us came together and we had a solidarity march and, and that meant something to the community, right? So I, I think it's about going to those particular populations and saying, you know, how can we, what, what, like, let me step back. It's going to those particular groups and asking them what they need and not not trying to come in and solve for them, right? Um, so like in that particular case, it's good feedback that maybe um, women of color and trans women didn't feel safe. But instead of trying to figure out what the solution is, it's sitting with them and saying, how can we make you feel safe and letting them lead on those issues? I definitely, oh, I definitely cannot disagree with listening to people of color and trans people. Um, I know one very vocal and radical liberation feminist uh, who's who I have read is Angela Davis, and her overall ethos really is we should abolish prisons, um, which I know is a very radical concept. But the idea behind it is in order to abolish prisons, we have to solve the problems causing crime. Um, do you think that there are ways Congress could address these issues that are causing crime ahead of time and lower the crime rate further and therefore reduce the need as such or in as much as such exists for prison? 100% I do. I absolutely do. And I think that's why we're seeing um, such a push from the people in these, you know, what some term these big, bold, progressive ideas. Uh, you know, Medicare for all is one. Having access to healthcare for an entire population is helpful. Um, you know, better funding schools and, and funding schools equitably address, helps address that issue. Uh, we look at the Green New Deal for housing that would affect that issue, right? And I think um, we sometimes think these ideas are big and bold because we've never heard them before. But if you sit with them for five minutes, you realize that they're not so bold at all and they're really common sense-based issues. Um, I, I, I absolutely think that there's a lot more we can be doing, um, you know, for marginalized groups and uh, really many communities that would prevent this school to prison pipeline. And, um, and obviously part of it, uh, again, it's not like one easy solve because it's interconnected with a lot of other issues, racism being one, but then there are certainly many issues that Congress can affect that would uh, limit crime for sure. Okay, so I know that uh, that last question was 
kind of a toughie. So hopefully this one will be much, uh, much easier well, to explain yeah, your answers to. It's not but, that it's uh, tough, but it's just, it's so comprehensive that uh, right, of course. to address, you know, in a broad stroke without speaking about the specifics. Of course. And I, I don't mean to say that it was hard for you so much as it's just a very complicated question. Oh, no, no, no. I didn't yeah. think that way. Uh, <laughs> cool. Well, I'm going to stop the uh, the apology train and just move on. But <laughs> I know previously or in your previous life or whatever, you worked with corporations on wellness programs. Uh, and I'm sure you have heard of Bernie Sanders. Uh, Once or who twice. Is, yeah, <laughs> who is uh, famously not in favor of corporations being in charge of wellness overall. Uh, what role do you think corporations should play in wellness? Yeah, so I I think that um, I'm not opposed to there being a role in wellness, and I'll tell you why. Um, I'm not opposed because right now it's, it's one of the only vehicles to push for it. Um, but if we, if all goes well in 2020, and we can enact Medicare for all relatively quickly, um, Medicare for all isn't a wellness solve, right? It is a, um, it's, it's really a sick care solve, right? And, and we need that for absolutely. But it's looking at how can we look at our society and now also offer what some would call wellness, what some could call preventive care. Um, I think there's certainly approaches we can take on a congressional level that would feed into overall wellness, but I think we would really have to define what it looks like, um, you know, to, to, to certainly talk about in depth. Uh, what I did is I worked with organizations, um, some corporations, many nonprofits, organizations. I also worked with families um, and children on health improvement programs. So, you know, I did it on the individual level, but I also did it on a strategic um, national and global level for for organizations. Um, what I would do is I would look at their chronic risk profile, and we would build programs that would help their populations get healthier. We would improve culture. We would uh, build inclusivity programs. Um, you know, and we, we would build stress management programs. So it was very comprehensive and complex. Um, I do think that there's a place for it on a corporate level because. Policies like paid childcare and and how you treat parents that feeds into a well-being program, in my opinion. Um, you know, a certain amount of hours of week worked and not overworking and burning out our employees and our our workforce also feeds into well-being. So, um, I do think that there is a place for it, but um, you know, again, we would have to identify the specific elements to talk about it more in depth. Would you support a bill for a thirty-two hour work week? I would. All right. I like that answer. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great answer. Succinct. Sim <laughs> simple, easy yeah. answers are always <laughs> ideal. Um, so one of the problems with uh, some of these big, bold ideas that aren't even actually necessarily so big and bold, but in the right. scope of what we're used to in American politics are still kind of monumental feeling, uh, like Medicare for all, is right. that there is a lot of money influencing the, you know, that the hand as it goes to vote in Congress. Um, and in particular, uh, we can definitely point towards the medical industry as a huge giver of large and large amounts of cash mm -hmm. uh, to people in the federal government to keep things the way that they are right now. Um, what can we do or what would you do specifically mm -hmm. to combat the influence of dark money and corporate money on politics? 
Yeah. Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, to echo what you said, we do have some serious problems, but they're not being solved because the majority of elected officials are being paid not to solve them. We think about dark money and corporate PAC money at its very core, it's bribery. Um, you know, businesses donate to politicians to get a return on their investment almost always. I mean, sure, you may have a small business here and there that wants to donate a little bit of money, fine. But overwhelmingly, businesses are donating to get something in return, right? It's a business decision. It's designed to protect their profits against the interests of all of us, you know. Um, and so one of the things that I am proposing and I've introduced is um, an act called the Paid Buy Act which stands for Politician Accountability Information Disclosures Benefiting You. So a little bit of a mouthful, but a really good acronym. <laughs> and what it would do is force accountability and transparency on our elected officials. And average, you know, average voters don't understand um, or often don't understand the level of influence that corporations have over the problems that they face every day. Um, so what this act would do is force electeds to disclose relevant corporate donations in their campaign messaging, in their official statements, um, and always, you know, after a vote. So what that would look like, um, for example, if I am um, if I'm a presidential candidate and I don't support Mayor Pete, or or let's say this is even better, let's say I'm my opponent and I support a public option. Um, for the life of me, those who scream fiscal responsibility, I, I can't understand why they would support the public option because it's it's literally the most expensive um, option of, of the, the three major options we're talking about. Uh, so I support that. I, being my opponent, would have to disclose that I've taken hundreds of thousands of dollars from insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies. Um, and I think, or at least my hope, is that this type of very public disclosure would force people to start to understand what's really happening. Because um, it's very difficult. You know, as I think I mentioned earlier, I'm a mom of three. I have a nine-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old. So I certainly know what it's like to work and try to get my kids to all their activities and, and you know, make sure that they're fed healthy food and uh, all their projects are done all the time. Like, life can be very hard. And it takes a lot of work to sleuth through and see, even with open secrets, a gift that keeps giving, but <laughs> even with open secrets, it's very difficult to track um, you know, all the money that's going to your representatives. And so my hope is that this act would, um, would really help the public start to understand who their representatives are paid by and why some of the some very solvable problems aren't being solved. And I'm excited to tell you that um, this particular act is already gaining traction. Some of my fellow progressive challengers uh, in, in the New York area have signed on to the act and said that they will support it as well. So so we're very excited about it. It does sound very exciting um, and like a very interesting like piece of policy that we probably could really use some more stuff like that. I'm curious if you also support um, any other significant measures towards public funding of elections or uh, towards like kind of like reform that would help uh, the average person uh, be more involved in the selection of their political candidates in general. 
Yes, I do support publicly funded elections. I think it's the only way that we can rebalance power. Um, as someone who, you know, who is a working woman, I can tell you all that it is very, very hard to run a campaign if you're not independently wealthy. Um, you know, we are, uh, we're raising money from the grassroots and it's, it's certainly the harder road, but I think it's the road that we need to take to, to make a point to show other electeds that it can be done. Um, and I think really just squash the argument that we so often hear, which is, well, elections are expensive. How else am I supposed to fund it? Um, you know, interestingly at the end of Q3, my opponent only had six small donors. He had $1.8 million. Six, Jesus. Six small donors and $1.8 million. So what does that tell you, right? It tells you that exactly the majority of our representatives are very, very wealthy or being paid by very, very wealthy folks, which is why it's so exciting to see so many progressives reject corporate money and step up and run and do it in such a noble way. Um, And we're starting to see movement. We're starting to see some win. And I, I hope that that trend continues. But I absolutely support public finance because, as I said, I know how difficult it is. And I think it's really the key to rebalancing power. We don't need ultra millionaires governing our country. Um, I'm not opposed to having some in there. They're, they're representing a very small percent of us nationally. So absolutely, some of, you sh- some of them should be there. But we should not look at our Congress and every single one of them are multi-millionaires. It should not be that way. How are we supposed to get representative? That, or how are we supposed to have representation for working class folks if there are no working class folks in Congress? We're starting to see more women, um, you know, w- more women in Congress, which is wonderful. And I'm encouraged by it. But if we don't get more women in Congress, will we ever get paid childcare? The fact that we don't have that in one of the most developed countries in the world is, is, obscene. Um, you know, the maternal mortality rate in the United States is one of the highest in, in, in developed countries, if not the highest, it's either one or two. And that's not a problem I ever hear anybody talking about. I, I should be releasing um, a policy plan on that soon. Um, so I'll, I'll shoot it to you guys once it's ready. Um, but the reality is that we're if we're not represented in Congress, our problems won't be solved. Um, it's it's why the Hyde Amendment is still on law. And, and for your viewers who may not know, you know, the Hyde Amendment is an amendment that blocks federal funding to access abortion, and it adversely affects uh, young women, women of color, um, and really female veterans. And it's absurd that we have a legal medical procedure, and now we have a, an amendment that won't allow federal funding to act for you know for folks to access it when they need it. Um, it's because we need more women and more pro-choice women in Congress. So some kind of just rapid fire election related questions before I segue into something on unions. Uh, mm-hmm. Would you be in support of a democracy dollars initiative as um, done by municipalities like Seattle and proposed by candidates like Andrew Yang? Can you just what exactly just because I've read so many. So different- democracy dollars are. Uh, I'm just going to give how they're implemented in Seattle because I have experience with that. Democracy yeah. dollars are, you receive four $50 vouchers oh, that, you can mm-hmm. then, that you can then um, donate to candidates for political office, and they'll receive that money, but they, they can't be spent any other way. Uh, yes, I would absolutely be in favor of that. 
Uh, would you, and kind of a softball, uh, would you be in support of abolishing the Electoral College? I would. Would you be in support of ranked choice voting? Yes. Uh, that, that, all sounds, that all sounds fantastic. A plus. Though. You did a it. Plus. You got 100, <laughs> you 100 points out of 100. 100. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, you, uh, pivoting to unions. Unions are, are something that's been a massive public force for change and a public force for good in decades past, but now they've come to kind of a slump and kind of a decline. And we've been seeing their graphs on this about how the um, decrease in union activity correlates with increase in income inequality. Yes. So how will uh, how will you, as a congresswoman, work towards uh, work towards increasing or bringing back the stature of unions to what they once were and their democratizing impact on society? Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that um, that graph up. When I saw it, I was really shocked. I I come from like my grandfather was in a union, and I actually used to be in a union. And I know the power and the strength of unions. I I, I worked in, um, I, I was a bartender and I've worked both non-union uh, bartending jobs and bartended in a union. And, and I the, the difference between the two were, were night and day. Uh, my bartending union job allowed me to have health insurance, which is something that's virtually unheard of in New York. Um, so, so it, for me, I, I strongly believe in unions. I'm very pro-union. I think that we need to um, make it easier for uh, unions to unionize. Um, and I think that, you know, Bernie Sanders' union plans and um, some of Elizabeth Warren's union plans, I think, are strong. And I think we need to maybe combine both of those ideas um, to ensure that we can unionize uh, collective unioning. Uh, is that collective unioning? That's not a word. <laughs> it's, it's, it's close enough. This is, this is the anti-wonk show. We make up words yeah. all the time. I think that's but if you do want uh, to know the wonk term for it, it's collective bargaining. bargaining. Yeah, that's what I just said, like, collective bargaining. But I think I might like collective a collective unioning better than collective bargaining. You know, I, I'm certainly in favor of, of strengthening unions um, and collective bargaining. Uh, and I, I think we need to really protect workers. And it's something that's been sorely missing um, for the last many decades, as we've seen, um, you know, wages have stayed stagnant since the 70s. Um, you know, I I remember when I graduated college and the average salaries that, you know, were available to me and to my friends. And I look and that was that was quite a while ago that I graduated college. And this, the average starting salaries are still exactly the same today. Um, so, you know, we definitely have a problem. We see, you know, my district is the fourth highest um, wealth gap in the country. So we have some ultra, ultra wealthy um, inhabitants of the district. And we have a lot of um, lower economic um, folks here as well. And uh, it's something that we're looking at. I think, um, you know, I'm encouraged by the Green New Deal and bringing, you know, strong green union jobs in. And I think uh, that's something that we probably need to message a little bit better as Democrats, what that looks like and how it could impact specific communities. Um, but overall, I'm very pro-union. Oh, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's fantastic. Thank you. How will some of these policies that we've talked about and maybe some that we haven't mentioned but are in your platform, how will they specifically impact your community? Yeah. Um, sure. Well, one, I, I mean, we talked a little bit about Medicare for all, and I think that's, that's something that impacts every community. 
Um, it's one of the top issues that I hear. I've met um, young young men in their third. I met a young man in his thirties who has diabetes and it's uncontrolled, and his medication costs thirteen hundred dollars a month, and he has good insurance and he can't afford it, and he's going into debt. And that's just one example uh, of a young man. You know, seniors who are rationing their medicine and their insulin. Um, you know, folks who are struggling with insurance companies, um, and, and these, these things aren't necessarily unique to my district, but I think, uh, Medicare for all would be a huge boom to my district. Um, a green new deal here on where in my district, which is, uh, you know, Queens is part of New York city, but it's also on long Island. Uh, it's a coastal community. Uh, we've seen our shorelines deteriorating, uh, and, and, you know, super storms and even, Quite honestly, regular thunderstorms now are flooding um, homes, and you know it's it, it's doing tremendous damage. Um, aside from that, you know, on Long Island, we have an aquifer system where we access our water, and so as sea levels rise, what starts to happen is the you know the salt water pushes in on our aquifers, something that's referred to as salt water intrusion, and it once the salt mixes with the actual water, it's not drinkable. So we're going to have a water security, a water security issue here on Long Island very soon. Um, couple that with the with the fact that we already have polluted um, polluted aquifers. Um, you know, we have a plume in um, one town in my um, in my district, and it is a plume is it's essentially a, a large ball of chemicals and carcinogens and, and pollution. Um, and so, you know, we have rising cancer rates all around. So bringing a Green New Deal and, and realizing what that would look like on Long Island and bringing the jobs, but, you know, making sure that our our waters are clear. I mean, obviously, um, coast communities, you can't, there's not much you can do unless we have a global approach from, you know, melting ice caps. But I think it's important for um, for different communities to realize the impacts of climate change. Um, you know, particularly like in New Mexico, where it gets super hot, you know, it's only going to get hotter. And I know like in Texas, they're having uh, crop issues. We'll see things like that. Um, we have some farms here in Long Island. Um, and, and as the, the weather patterns change, it's going to get more and more difficult to grow crops. Um, so that's something specific as well that I think, um, you know, is, is, is really the existential crisis of, of now and of my generation, but that, that real live, um, it's, it's an issue that really truly affects the lives of everyday people. But I always refer to it as the, um, the, the frog sitting in the pot of water. I don't know if you've ever seen that cartoon. There's a frog sitting in a pot of water on low heat and it's kind of nice and it gets a little bit warmer and the frog isn't really paying attention because it's happening gradually. And then before the frog knows it, he's sitting in a pot of boiling water. And that's what I like in the climate crisis too, because I think it's, it's one of those things that in many communities, people are not seeing the real effects of it. Um, and unfortunately, um, we're at a point now where we don't have a lot of time and you know we're not going to get a do-over, so we need to connect it to how people how people experience their lives today and what it will look like. You know, we're not in Australia, we're not in California, here in my district. So we, we thankfully, we don't uh, you know experience wildfires, but these things are all connected. And I think you know as much as we can, um, you know, as I said, as much as we can connect it to everyday life, I think it's it's impactful. So you know, those particular issues, um, I think are 
you know, very, very important to my my district. I'm sure you've heard the statistic that there's about 500 people who are responsible for global warming. Um, my question about that is, should we eat them or compost them? <laughs> well, I, I'm not in the business of eating anybody. So <laughs> um, I, I think that we need to have some reasonable conversations and we need to make folks pay their fair share. And when corporations um, destroy and pollute, they need to be exclusively held responsible for it because they've impacted so many, um, you know, on a smaller scale. We have a, um, a weapons manufacturer and, you know, former aviation company on Long Island um, who for years just dumped all kinds of chemicals into the soil. And they're actually primarily responsible for that plume that I was telling, that I had just mentioned. Um, unsurprisingly, um, that particular company is a big donor to my opponent. Um, you know, I think, you know, it, it doesn't always work this way, but where appropriate, I think that, or, or sorry, when not, not when appropriate, but when possible, um, you know, when the situation allows, we should not be allowing federal contracts to organizations who have dumped and polluted and refused to clean it up. Who inspires you? Oh my goodness. Um, on a personal level, my babies and my husband, um, they're, I'm very, very blessed in the sense that I have um, what to me, like the best support network around me. And they are just, um, they make me laugh. They inspire me. They, they, I look at my kids, you know, and I, I, ha I needed to, you know, running partly, I mean, a, a big chunk of why I'm running is for my children. I look at them and I want them to have a future. I want them to be able to have the best life that they can. And I think most parents feel that way. And I just need them to know that like their mom did everything she could for them. Right. Um, so they, they are personally my, you know, my biggest inspiration. Um, I have a friend, my friend Tram Wynn, who is one of my best friends in college. And she's just, she's a political organizer in Virginia. And she's done so much work. We've seen what's happened in Virginia over time. Uh, now Virginia is like completely blue. And, and she's been an integral part of that. Um, and she's, she's just such a little badass. And she is just a constant, um, she's a constant inspiration to me. Um, and for those I don't know, um, you know, I love Stacey Abrams. I, I think what she's been able to do in her organizing work, both in Georgia, um, and then also now what she's doing with Fair Fight. Um, Alexandria Casio cortez I think uh, she's really changed the game and she's changed the conversation. And I don't know that I'd be having this conversation with you if she didn't come before me. Um, and show that that it was possible to run a campaign um, if you weren't independently wealthy and it was possible to represent um, your district in New York and really the country in in meaningful ways. Um, who else inspires me? Uh, I mean, I just I think any powerful woman that steps up and and tries to take on something that uh, historically has not been uh, available to women, I think is, is incredibly profound and incredibly inspiring. And, 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 and I guess like lastly, um, as I've been on a stump and all over my district knocking doors and meeting folks, um, you know, I have met some of the most incredible people with some of the most moving stories and they're doing really amazing things um, in our community. And that's what I think that's the gas in my tank. That's even when I'm on my most empty days, I think of them and 
and I'm able to do a little bit more than I thought I could that day. Um, because, you know, this is really this whole campaign, everything, it's all about all of us, you know, it's not about, it's not about one campaign. It's not about one person, but it's about how we can um, make lives better for all of us. So uh, Melanie Dodrigo, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You have been a fantastic guest. And we've just really enjoyed speaking to you about so many topics. Um, let the people out there listening know, where do we find your campaign on the internet and what can they do to help? Yes, uh, my campaign website is Dorigo2020. It's uh, D-A-R-R-I-G-O 2020.com. Um, please come and you know sign up for our newsletter. If you can make a donation, we'd be very grateful. As I mentioned, we're a grassroots campaign. so. Um, every $5 donation, every $20 donation really does mean something to us. And it really goes a long way. Um, so you can find us there. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Dorigo for Congress and on Twitter at Dorigo Melanie. Fantastic. Uh, once again, thank you for joining us yeah, on the show. Wonderful. And everybody out there listening, thank you so much as always for listening, supporting the show. We appreciate you. If you want us to keep making wonderful content, and continue to improve that content and get better and better, you know, more awesome stuff. Don't forget our Patreon is patreon.com slash not safe. And with that, yes, uh, with that, uh, Melanie, thank you once again. Thank you so much. I'm Kennedy Cooper at Kennedy T. Cooper on Twitter. Leia Rose at Leia underscore Rose underscore. Rachel Khan at Reach Rachel Khan. Thank you so much, everyone. Bye-bye. See ya.